following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, October 31st has come and gone, and it's a day for the church that's not about costumes and candy. It's a day that is about the sound of Martin Luther's hammer tapping his theses on the church door. It's a tapping that still echoes in the church today. And the man, Luther, that God used to spawn the Reformation, he too was in the midst of a Reformation in his own soul. His journey to salvation hinged upon one particular verse, actually, Romans 1, 17, which says, for the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And as he well, came in his studies, he was teaching, he was studying through Romans and teaching it. And as he came to that passage, he was perplexed. He was dismayed. Actually, the more he studied and thought about it, he was angry. Because that phrase, the righteousness of God, Luther understood that to mean his justice, his judgment against sin. And sin was something that Luther was acutely aware of in his own life. And he struggled with the guilt and the burden greatly. In fact, he went into the monastery in order to try to relieve that guilt because he thought that was the way he could deal with it. And while he was in the monastery, he often went without food, went without sleep, often slept without a blanket just to self-imposed affliction. Uh, A couple of times he almost froze to death. In fact, he later reflected on his life and he said, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. You know, Luther, he, he felt the burden of his sin, but he, he didn't know how to free himself of it. And so as he began to study Romans and he came across 117, he only became more agitated. Because there when it says the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, and as he read that, the judgment of God is revealed. He was struggling, perplexed, because he's saying, well, oh, great, even the gospel doesn't relieve me of this tension and guilt from the law. It's only adding to my burden of sin. In fact, let me read to you his words as he reflected back on this time in his life. He said, I was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I had wished I'd never been created. Love God? I hated him. I was angry with God, and and I said to him, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost original sin are crushed by the law without having God adding pain to pain by the gospel and by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. And he said, "I, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. But those words in Paul kept rattling around in his mind, and he kept thinking about them, meditating on studying them, and one day it hit him. He was struck with an epiphany. I'll let him speak in his own words. He says, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in the righteousness, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, the righteous by faith shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. As it is written, the righteous through faith shall live. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. You see, as Luther began to think about and meditate on these words, he realized he wasn't reading the whole sentence. He was fixated on the righteousness of God and how he understood that to be. But it wasn't until his eyes focused on the the phrase that followed, the righteous shall live by faith, that he, he recognized that righteousness isn't God's judgment. It is a right standing before God that he gives to any by faith. And Jesus Christ, the true son of God, the only son of God. And it was that discovery of justification by faith that that unleashed a revival of epic proportions. Indeed, it turned the world upside down. And so in a real sense, we could say that that one short phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, that that one little sentence was the the hinge upon which the Reformation turned. It embodies the heart of the gospel, that 
that sinners can actually stand before God guilt-free, forgiven, made just, made righteous because of faith in Jesus Christ. I heard some amens. That is an amazing truth. It's a wonderful truth. And it is one that Luther had rediscovered, a scriptural truth that had been lost for centuries within the swamp of salvation by good works. And that truth, the righteous shall live by faith, it didn't come originally from Luther, right? He got it from Paul. But see, Paul can't take credit for it either. He actually took the phrase from a little-known Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. And so we're going to be looking at Habakkuk again this morning to see the context and what spawned the phrase that shook the church out of the dark ages. So if you could be turning to Habakkuk, we'll be in chapter 2 this morning. Last week we looked at the first chapter and we realized that Habakkuk was not your normal prophecy. Normally a prophet, he was commissioned to speak to the people what the Lord had told him to speak, right? But in the book of Habakkuk, the only speaking that Habakkuk does is to God. There's a dialogue between him and the Lord. And so that is the focus in Habakkuk's book. And Habakkuk, in that dialogue, asks several very bold and poignant questions. The kinds of questions that, you know, if you hear somebody asking, you might be sliding over a little bit just so you'd be out of the blast radius. Right? Because these were provocative questions that that he was asking. But they were questions that were not accusatory in nature against God. They were questions seeking answers. Because Habakkuk had come to a crisis of faith. He was looking at the world around him in Judah. And he saw the perpetual violence and sin and evil. And he wondered, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? Injustice is commonplace. Violence is happening every day. Yet God seemed to him absent. And instead of throwing down a a lightning bolt, God instead answers him. He gives his answer in verses 5 to 11 that he was raising up the Chaldeans. These were those living in Babylon, and he was going to use that people to bring consequences on the people of Judah for her sin. But after hearing that response, right, how did Habakkuk feel about that? Oh, oh, good, that's great. Right? No, remember, he was even more perplexed, more troubled. It wasn't that Judah was going to be judged. That's not what troubled him. It was who God was going to use to be the means of that judgment, a people that God himself even said were cruel and ruthless And so in verse 13 of chapter 1, Habakkuk says, Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And his point was, God, you're going to use that people who are more wicked than we are to bring that judgment? You're going to allow them to, to sinfully abuse and harm us? You see, the prophet here is, again, he's wrestling with the issue that plagued him in the first prayer. It's the issue of theodicy. It's a fancy theological term that simply means addressing the issue of why a good, just, and sovereign God would allow evil in his world. Verses 12 and 13 in chapter 1, we see what really bothered Habakkuk was that he knew God to be good and just and holy and pure, but yet God was going to allow these evil people to do evil things. And he just did not understand how God could permit that. And so I I appreciate this man. I appreciate his struggles. I appreciate that that he wrote these down. And I think we all can because we all wrestle with these same questions. We too know God to be good and, and just and holy and wise and sovereign. And yet we look around. We see what happens around us, don't we? Even things that have happened to us, to those in our family. There have been many a soul that have been shipwrecked on these rocks. Those who have even abandoned God altogether because they cannot understand or accept why God would allow what happens in his world. And in fact, I was reading this week about the, the son of evangelist, you know, Tony Campolo, probably heard of him. His son was had been a pastor for over 20 years, but he announced a year ago he was no longer a Christian. And now he serves as the humanist chaplain at USC. If you go on the website, you'll see that the purpose of that role is uh, he wants to promote the pursuit of secular goodness as a way of life. Well, the question is, how, how does a guy get from pat, the path of a committed pastor to a committed agnostic? How did that happen? Well, he said in his own words that he couldn't reconcile 
what he had seen, and he had some uh, several inner city ministries he was involved in. He could not reconcile what he saw there with a good and sovereign God. And at first, he rejected God's sovereignty. He said, well, God must not be in control then. But it wasn't long after that before he rejected God altogether. And he's not the first. Beloved, we have to come to grips with this issue. We have to understand, lest we too find our faith being dashed upon those same rocks. And thankfully, God is not silent on this issue. He didn't ignore Habakkuk's concerns or dismiss him, but he responded to them. And his response is given in chapter 2. And so uh, I ask if you'd please stand one more time. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 in this chapter. After uh, Habakkuk had expressed his additional concerns, it says in verse 1, or he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he's like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Well, before we dive in further, let's ask the Lord to give insight. Father, I do pray you would give us insight to understand what you're saying here and how you have answered Habakkuk's concerns, questions, Lord, that that I have, that we have, things that we struggle with, Father, and seeing how you operate your world. And God, I pray you would give us understanding and Lord, encourage us with the truth that you have here and help us to know, Lord, how to apply it. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you be seated. Well, here in verse 1, we see that after Habakkuk expresses his moral dilemma to God, he resolves to go to the guard post and wait. Again, he probably didn't go to an actual watchtower, but... So it's a figurative way for him to express that he went to a place alone to meditate, to think about, and to wait for God's response and what he's going to say when God did respond. We aren't told how long he waited, but God did indeed give him a response. And we see that response in the rest of the 19 verses of chapter 2. And in that response, we find three truths in grappling with theodicy, three principles to bring to mind, to, to help us in understanding what it is, and understanding and knowing how to address this problem of evil in God's world. The first principle that we see here is to look to God's word for the answers. And that principle is seen in several ways here in verse 2. Notice the very first sentence. Right in verse 2, it says what? The Lord, what? Answered me. The Lord responded. The Lord said something. He gave an answer. That tells us that, again, God is not silent on the issue. When he heard Habakkuk expressing these questions and, and wondering what was going on, God didn't say, oh, well, uh, why don't you get, let me get back to you on that, uh, Habakkuk. I'm kind of busy right now. Uh, why don't you check out my website, God.com, and look at the FAQ section. You might find something helpful there. Right? That's not what God did, did he? He gave an answer. He responded. He has given answers. Not just to Habakkuk and several other places in his word. The other night I was watching a pastor. Um, it was an interview from the past. He's being interviewed on CNN. And it was uh, right after a natural disaster had occurred. I think it was the tsunami in, in Japan. that happened several years ago. And so the interviewer, the CNN reporter, had asked this pastor, does this disaster mean that God is all-powerful but doesn't care or that he does care but that he is not all-powerful? Think, gee, I've never heard that question before. Now, the question itself is an inherent fallacy. It presumes that there's no third option. It presumes that, that God doesn't have a greater purpose, a greater good, something that only he understands, one that we can't fully see. But rather than point that out, the pastor, uh, he evaded the question. 
he kind of started talking about something else, but, but this was a good reporter. And he asked him again. He tried to evade it again. He asked him a third time. And finally, the pastor said with a somewhat embarrassed expression, well, it's really a paradox and I'd rather not go there. Wow. So those listening, here's a guy who's representing the Lord and supposedly understands the scripture. And those listening now are left to wonder, thinking, well, maybe God then isn't really all powerful or maybe he doesn't care or maybe he just isn't. Beloved, we, we don't need to throw our hands up on this one. Shrug our shoulders. Say, I, I, I don't know. It's just a mystery. It's a paradox. We don't need to say that because God didn't say that. Indeed, there is much about the problem of evil that is beyond our understanding. We are finite. God is infinite. He sees the end from the beginning. We don't. So there are some aspects to this that that uh, we don't have specific answers to. But God has not been silent about it. He has told us all we need to know in order to help us understand and deal with this difficult issue. He answered Job, didn't he? Rather extensively, by the way, when Job was asking why. Jesus responded to those who came to him in Luke 13 asking about, what about this massacre that Pilate initiated, the Galileans? Why'd that happen? Jesus responded and gave an answer. God answered Habakkuk here. So brothers and sisters, there are answers. God has given them in his word. And again, here in Habakkuk, God shows how important it is that we know that he's given a response because he tells Habakkuk what? First thing he says, right? Habakkuk, write this down. Record this. Make it clear. Make it plain. I want the people to know this. Those especially in your generation and the one to follow. He says here to record the vision. Some think that is specifically referencing uh, writing down verses 4 and 5. Others think it may be the entire chapter. Um, he mentions tablets, plural here. But, but either way, the important point here is that God tells Habakkuk to clearly inscribe what he is about to say. The question, though, is why? Well, look at verse 2. He says there, so that the one who reads it, literally the, the, the reading one, may run. What does he mean by that? Well, this idea of, of run, it's similar to often you hear in the Bible that the term used walk. It says phrases like walk in love or walk in his commands. That has the idea in a spiritual sense of, of what? It's not a literal walking, right? It's how you conduct your life, how you live your life. And so run is also used at times similarly. In fact, in Psalm 119.32, it says, I shall run the way of your commandments. Or Paul, remember, he talked about running the race of the Christian life. Or Hebrews 12.1, it says, let us run with endurance. So this idea here is that the person reading his word would respond, would respond to it. And here he tells Habakkuk to write down what he has to say. So not only would the people know what to think about the issue, but also know what to do. And so again, Regarding the difficult question of evil in God's world, we don't need to throw up our hands or, or be embarrassed or, or sheepishly say it's just a paradox, something we can't know. Beloved, know and be confident that God's word has answers. But so often the problem isn't that the answers aren't there, it's just that we don't know the Bible well enough, or we don't study it hard enough, or we don't trust in God enough. To know that he has said in his word all that we need to know and all that the world needs to know in response to this question. Again, God may not answer every question you have on this issue, which may indicate you're not asking the right questions. Or the answer may not be in the way that you want to hear it. But know for certain that God has given all that we need to know. Second Corinthians or Second Timothy 3.16, right? All scriptures inspired by God and profitable. It's adequate to equip his people for every good work. A second principle is found in verse 3, where in addition to looking uh, to God's word, we also must be patient with his timing. Be patient with his timing. God told Habakkuk in chapter 1 that the Chaldeans, they would be the instrument that he was raising up to address the issue and correction of Judah. And that, that first wave would hit not long after this conversation Habakkuk had with the Lord 605 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar's hand, the first wave, a second wave, and a third wave would hit over the next 20 years. And tens of thousands of people in Judah would be taken away 
in exile into Babylon. An exile that would last how long? Jeremiah said 70 years, right? That's how long they would be there for 70 years. And though God raised the Babylonians up as an instrument of his judgment, he didn't sanction the methods that they used. He didn't endorse. He wasn't okay with the sin that they committed in doing that. He did not turn a blind eye to their cruelty and their wickedness and their oppression. And so Habakkuk here, he doesn't understand. Well, why would you then allow this wicked nation to commit their evil? God says in verses 6 to 20 of chapter 2, I will deal with the Babylonians. I will bring judgment upon their sin, just as I am bringing upon Judah's sin. And it was that judgment, I think, that he told Habakkuk to write down. To write down what God was going to do on these tablets so that his generation, one that would soon be going into exile, and then their children who were in exile and their children also would have these words. Because I want you to imagine yourself this. Picture yourself, you're part of the people here in Habakkuk's day. And uh, uh, next month or next year comes around, Nebuchadnezzar sweeps through and he starts bringing people back into exile. You end up living in Babylon, separated from your land, from your nation, living amongst a pagan people, living under a king, subjected to a king who commands you to, to worship his idols. Right? You remember big golden statue he made? said, as I play the music, everybody bow down. And you hear about the story. I remember those three guys and what Nebuchadnezzar did to them when they didn't bow down. You're living in a land that's endorsing and promoting evil under a king who really could care less about your life. One who claims to be all-powerful. Now let me ask you, if you're living under those conditions and, and you hear the words of Habakkuk being read one day and know that this applies to Babylon, that he's going to bring judgment upon Babylon, what would you be thinking? Oh, well, that's good. Lord, whenever you get around to it, that'd be great. Judge him whenever you have time. Is that how we would feel? Is that how we would respond? God's going to judge him? Lord, do it now! I'm ready to do it now! Get me out of here! Deal with these people! Right? That would be... It would be mine, at least, anyway. And I'm sure that we would be like Habakkuk, wondering, you know, we hear these words and we look around, nothing's happening. Yeah, just, just the other day, he made another statue that we had to bow down to. I didn't, somehow I didn't get caught, but... Right, We're living in those conditions and wondering, God, how do you allow this to continue? You've, you've promised to deal with this. Why aren't you doing anything? And we too, we feel this way. We hear evil going on around us and wonder why. Perhaps you even heard this, this week, uh, the news about the couple who hung their three-year-old upside down so they could beat him. Left him unconscious, went out for a pizza came back and he was dead there are many stories like that many stories it's terrible it's despicable it's wicked so we say god do something now (laughs) do something now how can you let this go on and and perhaps we feel the same way if we're going through a trial right now or suffering or difficulties mistreatment saying lord do something now but notice what god says in verse three The vision, what I'm going to do, the vision is for an appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and will not fail. It will certainly come. You notice an emphasis here? You see what he's focusing on? That his judgment against sin will happen. And he's saying nothing will be more certain. It's going to come. The end is going to come. Their end will come. Nothing will stop it. But then there appears to be a contradiction here in verse 3 where God says it, it hastens to the end or to the goal. And then the very next line, he says, though it tarries. So well, wait a minute, which is it? Is it hastening or is it delaying? Well, this reminds us that God does not calculate time the way you and I calculate time, does he? In fact, right, the, to the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. But to us, especially if we're going through trials or seeing things going around us that don't make sense, a day seems like a thousand years. But don't mistake what seems to be delay. I think God's saying here, don't mistake what looks like to be delay to mean that he's not taking action. Like Habakkuk, we too need to wait in our watchtower. But the problem is we don't like to wait. Right? Waiting just shows us how impatient of people we really are. Right? Our, our culture is not built around patience, is it? Hurry up, tell me. Hurry up. 
Right? Respond, right? Our culture isn't built around waiting. In fact, we were just at a, went to get something to eat last night and it took forever to get a seat. It took forever to get our food. And at the end, I'm sitting there thinking, thinking about these words and going, you know, I'm just impatient. Our culture is designed around that. You know, when, when food's supposed to come to me, it's supposed to come right now. Where is it? Right? Amen. (laughs) Brother, you're missing the point. We'll meet at Pecos Bills right after, all right? Right, but, you know, we're on a tight schedule. We're busy. We've designed our culture around being fast and hurrying up. In fact, I got paid lots of money in my previous line of work to build chips that would actually operate faster and faster and faster. So your computers would run faster and faster. So you could do things more faster and faster and quickly. We're so impatient. God, take care of this now. Do it now. You say you're just. You say you care. You say you're in control. And so do something fast. Theologian Kenneth Barker says, Humans want to measure justice in the short term. God is just only if God acts according to our schedule. And if God agrees with our evaluation of what is just and what is fair and who is evil and who is not fair. Habakkuk learned that God is just if one waits to see the longer-term work of God, who in His sovereignty and eternity chooses to work according to His timetable. End quote. Again, that statement God makes, the vision is for an appointed time. When it's on God's calendar, it is fixed. And He has reasons for that timing. Right? Second Peter 3, 9, one of the reasons we see, He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is, remember how the verse continues? He's patient towards you. Why? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance? That's one reason that he may delay. I mean, think about this. If God had brought this judgment immediately and swiftly upon the people of Babylon, then that change in Nebuchadnezzar that we see happen in Daniel 4. You remember when he proclaims that he built all this himself and exalts himself and then God makes him like an animal eating grass and then at the end of that he comes to realize it is God who is the one that's really in control and we need to worship and praise him and if anybody doesn't I'm going to make your house a public toilet and impale you. You but, But he was so passionate about that because he recognized who the true God was. Well if God had judged Babylon, before that, he would have never come to that realization. Or Paul even was mentioned earlier, his conversion on a Damascus road. What if God had brought judgment upon him for how he endorsed the murder of our brother Stephen? Remember they were laying coats at Paul's feet. He was giving approval of that. What if God had judged him there? There was no Damascus road. You know, that might present a problem. That might turn out, things might have turned out a little differently for Martin Luther. And for the rest of us, right? God took Babylon down. He took them down in one night, actually, 539 B.C. Remember Daniel 5, that drinking party Belshazzar was throwing? That very night, God took that powerful empire out. But it was on his timing, 539 B.C. It happened not a second early and not a second late, but exactly when God wanted it to. So no beloved, he will carry out justice he will do what is right but he will do it at a time that he determines best and so we need to be as our brother david who as he was expressing his dismay on what was happening around him he says this in psalm 62 my soul wait in silence for god alone for my hope is from him he only is my rock and my salvation my stronghold i shall not be shaken trust in him at all times O people pour out your heart before him god is a refuge for us. And that's really a, a fitting passage for our third point this morning, and perhaps the most important point. For when wrestling with the evil happening in God's world, first remember to, to look to God's word, second, be patient with God's timing, and third, live by faith. Live by faith. This third principle is found in the famous words of verse 4 the righteous shall live by his faith. And the significance of this phrase cannot be overstated. In fact, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Walt Kaiser, he says of this verse, in three, only three Hebrew words, one of the most triumphant notes of biblical revelation is sounded. These three Hebrew words shook Europe and eventually the whole world. And they were not only important, significant 
the Old Testament, but also for the New. In fact, Paul's reference to them in Romans 1, which I read earlier, and in Galatians 3, we see that this phrase is also a fitting summary for the New Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. For Paul says in Galatians 3.11, these words, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. So here Paul, quoting Habakkuk, and identifies and describes exactly what Martin Luther came to realize, that it is the faith, person's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God then makes that person right before him. It's through the blood of Christ on the cross for sin and his righteous life. And that's what Paul is declaring here. And so we can see why Habakkuk 2.4 became the battle cry of the Reformation. Paul clarifies in Galatians 3 and Romans 1, Habakkuk's statement, a powerful statement of how one can be made righteous, how one can be declared just before God, what we would call forensic righteousness. And it doesn't come by keeping the law, right? It doesn't come by keeping religious standards or rituals. Rather, it is a product of faith alone in Christ alone. Again, that was one of the preeminent battle cries of the Reformation. Sola fide, sola gratia. But there are some to say, well, 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 that's a New Testament understanding of Habakkuk. That's something Paul kind of read into it. That wasn't something Habakkuk originally intended. He wasn't talking about this forensic justification about uh, uh, being made righteous. He was talking about doing righteousness. That a godly person is faithful to God and obeying Him. Now it is important that we don't read into the Old Testament what it says in the New Testament. We need to first understand what did the Old Testament author intend for his Old Testament audience to understand, right? That's how we all communicate. How we're supposed to communicate anyway. But... When we understand that, then we can better see how the New Testament author was using that passage within his context. So the question we need to first answer is, how does the statement, the righteous shall live by faith, how does God saying that in Habakkuk, how does it fit there? How does it fit within the context? Well, again, what's been Habakkuk's focus? Right? What have been his questions? What have been his concerns? What's the theme of his book? Right? Theodicy, right? The existence of evil in God's world. Right? His concern was, God, since you are holy and just, how can you tolerate such wickedness? And his other question is, how can you let ungodly pagans be used to allow, uh, how would you allow them to harm and oppress your people? Right? Those were what he was wrestling with. And so God responds to that. And in his response, again, he pronounces judgment. He's going to judge the Chaldeans for their sins. And he says that in verses 6 and on. But before he gets to that, and before he describes that, we see verses 4 and 5. And there God begins by contrasting two kinds of people, the ungodly and the righteous. He says in verse 4, the ungodly is, is literally the swelled up one, the puffed up one, haughty. His soul is crooked within him, that the idea there is his, his nature, his desires, his impulses. He, he doesn't want to be on God's straight path. He wants to be on his own. Verse 5, God describes the ungodly as one who's given to, to drunkenness, who's restless, who's unsatisfied. The, the picture here is of somebody who's discontent and he's always or she's always craving for more and more. Looking for ways to be satisfied and acquiring things regardless of the means. Now, in the context of Habakkuk, we know that he's referring primarily to the people of Babylon, right? That's who he's going to talk about in the verses that follow. Babylon was indeed the poster child for pride, hedonism, greed, power-hungry, abusive, violent. God says he will deal with their sins. But here in verses 4 and 5, he, he makes these remarks about the ungodly. And then sandwiched right in between them, he squeezes that one little statement. Again, there's three little words, three big words, but three short words. He squeezes it right in between there. The righteous shall live by faith. The question is, again, why why does he include this statement about the righteous? If the focus of the chapter is on what he's going to do with the Babylonians, the wicked, why does he mention this? And who does he mean by the righteous? And what does he mean that they will live by faith? And why, again, does he sandwich here between these two descriptions about the wicked? Well, I don't think God intended this phrase to be an afterthought or a parenthetical statement. But I believe this phrase is 
the most theologically significant statement in his book. In fact, among the Old Testament, even the scriptures themselves. And the importance of this statement that he's making here in verses 4 and 5 is underscored by that first word in verse 4. You see what it is? What's the first thing he says? Behold, right? Behold. And often that is used. It's an interjection given by the speaker because they want to kind of stop the presses. Hold on a second. I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is so important. Can't miss this. Behold. Right? Like John said in John 1. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was a rather important thing he was pointing out, wasn't he? So that is what God is saying here. He's stopping the moment. He's saying, behold. And then he makes this statement about the the ungodly and the righteous. And God is saying in this, there are two kinds of people in this world. And he wants to make this point first. There are those who live for themselves and those who trust in God. And how a person lands on that issue is what will determine how they live their life. Many say that word righteous here, tzaddik in Hebrew. It, they say this is not a, a forensic or judicial righteousness. Again, that it is not a being declared righteous or made just. But, but they say righteous here refers to right living. How one conducts oneself, living by God's standards. And they support this by saying that that word for faith here, so the word emunah, it normally means faithfulness, steadfastness, firmness. And so they're saying here that it's not faith or belief or trust, but it's this idea of being faithful. But that word does not always mean faithful. It also does mean trust or belief. In fact, we find both of these words in Genesis 15, verse 6. Remember Genesis 15? God had reiterated to Abraham his promise that he would grant him a son, that he would give him many descendants. And then in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Then Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You remember that, right? And Paul quoted that verse. And in Romans 4, he says, Abraham was declared just before God by his faith. And he went on to explain that. And so clearly in Genesis 15, 6, this was a, this was a forensic justification by faith. And I bring that verse up because it is intertwined and clearly connected to Habakkuk 2.4 because those same two words, believed and righteous, righteousness in Genesis 15.4 are the same two root words, come from the same two roots as faith and righteous in Habakkuk 2.4. And so when Paul says in Galatians 3.11 that the righteous shall live by faith and means by that that they will be declared righteous by faith in Christ, I, I don't think Paul is adding new meaning to Habakkuk. I don't think he is expanding upon something Habakkuk did not intend to communicate. Rather, what Paul is doing there, he's merely plucking the flower whose seed was planted in Genesis 15.6 and which sprouted in Habakkuk 2.4 and has now grown with the revelation of Jesus Christ and harvested by Paul to explain fully what it means that the righteous shall live by faith. Here in Habakkuk 2.4, God is contrasting two people. He's contrasting the one who is justified before him and the one who is not. He's contrasting the one who depends on God and the one who doesn't. The one who is saved and the one who is not. For the truly righteous ones are such because they trust in God. But we still have the question of why. Why does God make this statement here? Why does he put it here at this point in Habakkuk? And how does it relate to Habakkuk's questions? Well, I think the obvious implication is that if someone has been justified by God through faith, they will also live for God through faith. It's not a one-time event. They will be faithful. They will continue to trust in God. It's a perseverance of genuine faith. It's an enduring faith. It's a faith that not only leads one to salvation, but a faith that keeps one on the path. James Boyce said this, The word does not say that the righteous shall begin by faith and then proceed on some other principle. It does not say that the righteous shall draw on faith from time to time as faith is needed. It says the righteous will live continuously by his faith. And so as we consider the Odyssey and think about this issue, it is faith in Christ. It is implicit trust in his goodness and his justice and His holiness and His love, the righteousness of God, that is what will carry you through the storms of doubt. That is what will bring peace to your soul, even in the midst of the evil that you see around you. 
That is what will comfort you in the midst of trials. When things just don't make sense, you will live by faith. That's the same message that the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, brought up. In fact, turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. We're going to look at the same words that Tim read from earlier this morning. If you remember, right, Hebrews was uh, probably originally a sermon. It was a sermon addressed to primarily Jews who had made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were some that were sitting on the fence. The Christian life that they had committed to wasn't what they expected. It wasn't what they thought it would be. They were suffering persecution. They had lost many things, lost their homes, lost their positions, lost their finances. They were experiencing trials. And so some were tempted to throw in the towel and say, this this thing with Jesus isn't working out. I'm going to go back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews, he delivers to them a message reminding them of the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is God. He is the only mediator. He's the only one that can make you just, make you right before God. He's the only one that can forgive your sin. He's the only priest, the great high priest, who has provided salvation through his death on the cross. He is the only way. And so... The author makes an eloquent argument in providing that foundation of of Christ as the better and only way to salvation. And then in the middle of chapter 10, he calls them to draw near to Christ. He calls them to take action upon this truth. Toward the end of chapter 10, he speaks of their need to endure. Because as they were going through difficult trials and, and being persecuted and sinned against, I'm sure many of them were asking the same questions. Why? Why are you allowing this to happen? How could you let this happen, Lord? Deliver me from this. What is going on? I thought you were good. I thought you cared about me. I thought you were in control. They didn't like or they didn't understand what was happening to them. And so they were tempted to just walk away. And then the author of Hebrews says this in verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Did you hear something that sounded familiar in there? Yeah. There's our old friend Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. And, and here in the context of Hebrews, he's saying, you see, that the answer to, to your questions, the answer to, to Habakkuk's questions, the answer to our questions. When we're struggling with what God is doing, the answer comes down to this. Do you trust Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you entrust him with the decisions regarding running his world Can you have confidence that he does know what he's doing, that he does care, that he is just, that he is in control? For you see, the righteous is not only saved by faith, but lives by faith. That's the point. It's a faith that endures hardship. It is a faith that endures despite what is seen around them in the world. It is a faith that endures when God doesn't seem to be paying attention. It is a faith that says... Lord, I I don't understand what you are doing, but I will trust and follow Jesus no matter what. And it's that kind of faith that the author of Hebrews illustrates with example after example in chapter 11. Of people who were in difficult circumstances and their trust in God and what they did as a result. But that kind of faith is ultimately demonstrated in the ultimate example, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where the author of Hebrews is aiming those who are listening to him. In fact, look at chapter 12, Hebrews 12. We just sung about this verse a little bit earlier this morning. Hebrews 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author 
That means the, the chief example. And the perfecter. That, that means the one who lived a life of faith perfectly and completely. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him. That means to think on him. Meditate on him. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So, Beloved, when, when you're troubled by what you see happening around you, when you experience suffering, when you question what God is doing, when you're tempted to give up, the answer is to fix your eyes on the ultimate example of faith. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who trusted God to the very end. Because without trusting in Christ, there is no hope. There is no purpose. There is no answer for these questions or how to deal with them. When I was in seminary, I met a man uh, sitting in front of a bookstore. I'd seen him purchasing a Bible in the bookstore a little bit earlier. And so uh, he sat down and I sat near him and I, I asked him, has he read it before? Just strike up a conversation. We talked a little bit and as I began to share the gospel with him, he, he interrupted me rather abruptly and he, he said, can I ask you a question? How could, why would God allow a 10-year-old boy to be molested? At first I thought he's just trying to divert the conversation. People often do that, bring up a controversial topic and try to get the issue off of where they stand with Jesus Christ. But then he asked it again. And this time with a pained expression on his face, he says, why would God allow that to happen to me? Why would he let that priest, why did he let him do that to me? Where was God when that happened? It was then I realized that he's not throwing up a smokescreen here. He is wrestling, grappling with the horrific experience in his life. Terrible one. That's a person that he trusted. And he couldn't understand. He couldn't come to grips with it. To him, God either didn't care or God couldn't stop it. How would you have answered his question? There I'm sitting, silent for a moment, asking God for help, for wisdom. And I told him... How terrible I felt for him. How sorry I was that that happened. I felt bad for him. He was confused. He was hurt. He'd been carrying this burden for decades. He was probably in his mid-30s. Then I gently reminded him that, you know, it wasn't God who did that to you. It was that wicked, evil man. And God will deal with that. But he said, you know, I, I know that, but I don't understand why God let it happen if he could have stopped it why did he let it happen and i looked at him in the eye and i said i don't know i don't know why god let that happen in their life but this i do know i know that he cares i know that he's just i know that he's good and i told him this i said but you will you will never understand You'll never be in a place to understand or accept what has happened to you or how God could use such an awful experience in your life until you trust Him. You don't know how God's going to use this. And in fact, we talked more and I said, God is even using this now. You're, you're seeking Him, aren't you? You're trying to understand because you know, you know God is good. I mean, why was He looking for a Bible that day? We talked for a long time and I just encouraged him. I said, you know what? You need to trust him. And you know what's getting in the way of that? Is sin. Our sin prevents us from trusting God. Our sin keeps us from knowing his goodness and understanding his love and care. And so I told him, if you confess your sin, so we're both sinners. If you confess your sin, then you will know Christ. If you confess and desire to turn from it, you will understand better the love of the Lord Jesus who died to free you from your sin, to free me from my sin, to bring us into a relationship with God. And I told him that was the only way you would ever find peace from this pain. 
we talked a little more, prayed with him, encouraged him to go to, he lived right near Grace Community Church, a pretty good church over there. So I encouraged him to go. And I never saw the man again, but I still pray for him. I still think about him a lot. Beloved, we, we will never come to grips with the dreadful evil in this world if we do not trust the one who governs it. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, again, I, I pray for that man and thank you for his transparency. He's wrestling with these issues and even, Lord, the terrible things that took place in his life. And Lord, I, I do pray for his soul. I pray, Lord, that uh, he come to find comfort as he confesses his sin to you and Lord repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for us, Lord. I know many of us may have experienced something similar to him or we know family members that did or or some other awful, terrible sin, terrible evil that, that, Lord, comfort them, comfort us with these words. Comfort us with your message to Habakkuk. Lord, give us Patience with your timing and trust you to live by faith to, Lord, know that you have answers in your word. Lord, give us understanding. Lord, especially cause us to focus upon our Savior who is the ultimate example of faith, who who trusted you to the end. And Lord, showed us how to live a life walking by the Spirit and keep our focus upon him upon the cross, upon the throne on which He sits. For we know in that, as we trust and follow Him, He will give us the strength and courage and hope and understanding. We thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You've given us answers in Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'd uh, please stand with me as we close this morning and Just again to remind you, look to God's word, these questions, be patient with his timing, live by faith. I want to begin this morning where we, or end this morning where we begin with the words of Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as it is written, or for in in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. If you have any questions or need someone to pray alongside you, we'll have some folks up front this morning that you can talk to about that. And well, I would just remember these words this week, righteous shall live by faith. Amen.